Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, why are hundreds of British soldiers in the West African country of Mali? Their primary purpose is to protect civilians. So they were talking to locals about how they felt about the security situation. And they were also trying to identify where they believed extremist groups were operating and where they might have bases. We hear from a journalist just returned from the mission there and from troops training to go. America's Secretary of State sends a message to Moscow ahead of his visit to Ukraine. If Russia acts recklessly or aggressively, as it did with the SolarWinds cyber intrusion, as it did with interference in our elections, as it did with what it's done to Mr. Navalny, then we will respond. And the new museum that marks the role of logistics in campaigns. So our medal collection is comprehensive. It will cover every single operation the British Army have been involved with, uh, going back to the Battle of Waterloo. But first, it's been described by the UN as the most dangerous peacekeeping mission in the world. 300 British soldiers are in Mali and West Africa as part of the UN peacekeeping force in the biggest UK military operation since Iraq and Afghanistan. Mali is suffering from a rise in violent Islamist extremism as well as severe poverty. The Times defence correspondent Larissa Brown has just come back from Mali and told me what she had found. So we flew into Gao, which is the base where the UN peacekeeping force are operating and there are also dozens of British troops there. And then we flew out uh, to a place called Tessit, which is about 120 kilometres from Gao and where the Light Dragoons and the Royal Anglians are currently operating. And they're going out on a reconnaissance mission into towns and villages and so we joined them as they spoke to locals on the way. And what is their purpose exactly? So they've got a few different roles. Their their primary purpose is to uh, protect civilians. So they were talking to locals about how they felt about the security situation. And they were also trying to identify where they believed extremist groups were operating and where they might have bases. And there's quite a few different groups operating in Mali. So, for example, the Islamic State of the Greater Sahara and also Jainim, which is an Al-Qaeda affiliate. And there are also criminal bandits and groups operating in the region. So the UK is trying to get an idea of what all these different groups are doing and which areas they are in control of. And from your experience, what were the conditions like when you were travelling with them? conditions were extremely tough when 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 I was there it was 50 51 degrees and you know clearly the British troops were feeling it but of course they do undergo quite a lot of training before they deploy to that type of environment just to give you a sense of how hot it was there was there was water in the back of um, the jackal that I was traveling in and when I poured the water on my hands it actually scalded them it was that hot so it was pretty pretty tough I have to say. Of course, the British forces are on a UN peacekeeping mission. Um, the French who are out there have a counterterrorism role, don't they? Do they join up at all in the work that they're doing? How does it work? Not, not really. So the, so the guys that we've met, which, which are part of this 300-strong UK force, are on this completely separate UN peacekeeping mission. Um, but then, of course, we have got helicopters uh, that we've loaned to the, to the French as part of that counterterrorism mission. But the British troops that, that we were with are quite keen to stress that they are separate missions and that this is all about peacekeeping and they're not setting out to, to go and you know, fight or engage with extremist groups. However, if obviously um, 
a civilian, you know, they saw civilians that were, that were being attacked and they, they are mandated to, to fire back at the, at the jihadists. You point out in the reports you've written since you come back that this is the longest and largest desert reconnaissance patrol since World War II. And it's the first time that British troops have gone into enemy territory since the end of combat operations in Afghanistan. Um, how are they responding? How, how are they telling you about how they're getting on? So, the, you know, there was a sense that this is a really sort of exciting and important mission for, for British troops because, you know, they aren't they aren't in, inside, you know, behind the wire. They are going outside the wire for the first time in quite a quite a long um, period. So. So, you know, there really is a sense that there is a there is a danger out there. And at any moment they could come under attack from extremist groups. And, and they're, they're lucky so far in that they haven't had to fire a single shot. And and British troops are telling us that's because they believe that the extremist groups sort of see the huge firepower that they've got and all the vehicles that they're using and all of their their weapons. And they don't want to you know, they don't want to go anywhere near it because they're, they're, they're no match for a force of that size. Larissa Brown there. Well, Captain Alice Strawbridge from the Light Dragoons told the BBC's Jonathan Beale in Marley that some local people were unsure. They're reluctant to say what the issues are, which suggests that there is some sort of fear of reprisals if they are starting to open up of the true issues they do face. And it's kind of giving them a sort of an understanding and being a presence to provide that security. And Lieutenant Colonel Tim Robinson said force from militants would be met by force. If someone's going to attack us, we are not going to sit and watch them do that. We will defend ourselves. And if someone is going to attack or is about to attack the local nationals, then our job is to protect them. And if protecting them involves uh, using violence, then we will use violence. Well, here in the UK, more than 200 soldiers from the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Anglian Regiment and the Queen's Dragoon Guards have been completing training for their deployment to Mali, as Kirsty Chambers reports. In this simulated exercise, soldiers are reacting to the aftermath of an overrun compound by a militia group. Is one of the worst threats they could face out in Mali. Private Daniel Kluwer is from the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Anglian Regiment, who will be deploying there next month. Obviously, there's a threat out there, so I'm obviously scared about going out there and facing some of the things that we've been told about. But at the same time, I'm very excited because it's going to be my first deployment. British troops will be offering reconnaissance expertise as part of the UN peacekeeping mission. Major Gavin Hudson is second in command for two Royal Anglian and says the soldiers are undergoing a range of training. Um, there are complexities of human security that we've been preparing for. This morning, for example, the soldiers have been engaging with a situation where they encountered sexual violence and child soldiers. And so we've had lots of experts come in and, and explain to us how best to deal with those. They'll be deployed for six months to provide intelligence to operate to help protect local civilians. Kirsty Chambers reporting. Well, joining me now is Jonathan Marcus, the former BBC Defence and Diplomatic Correspondent, and Professor Michael Clark, the former Director of the Defence Think Tank, RUSI. Uh, hello, Jonathan. Um, we heard from Larissa there about the scale of the area covered. It is a vast area to patrol, isn't it? It is a vast area. I mean, Mali is a landlocked country, immensely poor, uh, fragmented population. Uh, it's got an area about double the size of Texas. It's, it's a huge huge, huge place, a population of about 19 uh, million or so, 
Uh, median age is about 16. They have all of the problems of poor countries with very young uh, populations. Uh, just to give you a statistic, they're ranked something like 175th out of 188 countries in the UNDP's Human Development Index. So uh, a huge range of problems that go well beyond uh, the insurgency uh, and the, uh, the problem of containing uh, these uh, Islamist fighters. Yes, and on that subject, uh, Michael, what do we know about the growth of extremist Islamist violence in, in Mali and other areas of West Africa? Yeah, it's um, it, it's come in different ways. I mean, in a sense, it's from the north and the south. It, it really took centre stage when Libya fell apart in 2011 after the attacks on the Gaddafi regime. And that excited in the south of Libya a Tuareg rebellion, a rebellion among the Tuareg peoples. And that sort of coincided with an upsurge in violence in northern Nigeria among Boko Haram and some other related groups. So you had two groups, one to the north of the Sahel, one to the south of the Sahel, that created so much chaos that the Islamists, the Islamic State people, Al-Qaeda-related groups, um, and a lot of criminal gangs, as it were, took uh, advantage of that. So the, the situation now is a complete mess because you've got different guerrilla groups and Islamists that, that all meld into one general uh, chaotic uh, situation of, of instability, sadly. And Jonathan, the aim of the UN mission is to protect civilians and build a sustainable peace. H how challenging is that? Well, it's hugely challenging. And of course, there is a bit of a sort of mixture of uh, security forces operating in the area. I mean, on the one hand, as you've mentioned, you have the UN force, which uh, Britain uh, has uh, a significant role in. And is this long range reconnaissance capability is very important indeed. Uh, as you also heard earlier, uh, Britain is helping with logistics for the French counter-terror mission uh, on the ground there. Uh, that's a mission that has had some successes, but it hasn't really been able to consolidate those successes uh, into fundamental political progress. And uh, we've seen in France, and not least with elections approaching there, uh, there's a, a growing desire, I think, in France to try and begin to scale down uh, their operation uh, on the ground there. You also, of course, have uh, the G5 force, I think it's called, which is a, a force made up, of, also a counter-terror force, operating uh, it, uh, with the French, uh, made up of uh, uh, armed forces from the local region. Uh, and I think what you find, you know, if you look at some of the wider analysis and discussion of the problems in Mali, and Burkina Faso, and, and, and Niger, and so on, uh, there does seem to be a feeling that, you know, there are too many eggs in the military basket and that the military side alone is not going to be able to secure uh, a settlement. There are many more mm. people on the ground now who are wondering about whether you really have to engage uh, some of these groups uh, and uh, try and tease out the problems in some sort of uh, negotiated way. Uh, that might be uh, something that allows the French to slowly uh, draw down their forces. But it is a total mess. And the Islamist struggle because of the inter-ethnic tensions, there are tensions, economic tensions between uh, farmers and herders and people pursuing different lifestyles and so on, against this backdrop of massive underdevelopment, huge poverty uh, and, and a rising very youthful population. And Michael, a mission has been going on for eight years. How much longer do you think UN peacekeepers will be there? They'll be there as long as their name implies. I mean, UNISMA, remember, stands for the United Nations Multidimensional Integrated Stabilisation Mission in Mali. And in reality, of course, these UN missions just go on forever because very often they just go down to more or less ineffectiveness. They're just troops sitting there protecting themselves. The reality of these missions, and this one is a dangerous mission, and 200-odd UNISMA troops have died in the in 
in these years. But the reality of UN missions is they depend on the on states that support them. So the real question for UNISMA is how long will the French stay involved in Mali? And that's a question for President Macron because French prestige and French commitment to the Sahel, which he says is very great, is absolutely on the line. So if the French stay in and if the European Union and other countries are prepared to try to do something, then UNISMA will make some sense. If they pull out, then UNISMA will, will, will stay there and probably achieve nothing. And just a quick mention, Michael Clark, of a story that's been moving quickly today of two Royal Navy vessels sent to waters around Jersey. It's said to monitor the situation in a row over fishing rights with the French. Um, how in the past has the Navy been used in these kinds of disputes? Yes, in lots of different ways. I mean, the one we all remember, of course, is the Cod War in the 1970s, British and Icelandic boats were actually more or less ramming each other over uh, uh, protection of the fishing areas that were disputed at the time. More normal work has been protection of things like the offshore oil rigs or fisheries, fishery protection somewhere else in the UK. Uh, and anti, uh, anti-counter-piracy, uh, they've been used for that, they've used counter-terrorism and anti-crime, anti, you know, looking, uh, looking for narcotics shipments being brought in. OK, gentlemen, stay with us. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrap. How the British Army has moved, been equipped and supplied during its campaigns from Agincourt to Afghanistan will be at the centre of a new museum dedicated to the Royal Logistic Corps, which opens later this month. It'll be based at a new site at Worthy Down near Winchester, having moved from its old home at Deepcut Barracks and will house a large collection of vehicles, equipment and uniforms used by the units and formations that have moved and supplied the army over the centuries. The museum's director is Major Simon Walmsley, who served 32 years years in the army, of which 19 were in the Royal Logistic Corps. Our first temporary exhibition in the new museum is on art, poetry, trench art and embroidery that has been done by serving soldiers um, over, over many years. So this is going back to before the First World War and on through the Second World War and contemporary wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and all sorts of um, objects and pictures have been provided for us to put into the display. And I understand you even have examples of poetry dating back to the Crimean War. Yes, we do. And uh, there's even one from uh, just after the Battle of Waterloo, although we don't think that was done by a serving soldier. So some of the pictures that we've had were contemporary, so they were painted at the time. Others were done afterwards. So a serving soldier today has done a, a painting of the military train in Taku Forts during the Second China War. So obviously he wasn't, that's more than 100 years ago, so obviously he wasn't there. But we do have paintings that were done uh, during the war. And so some of the scrapbooks we have, most amazing scrapbooks, where page after page, uh, someone has taken the time to illustrate their jottings and their, and their notes they've taken during a course they've attended. Uh, we can't display all of it live, so we've got a touch screen where we're going to be displaying a large number of the poems and pictures that we couldn't hang on our walls so that visitors can, can flick through that and just see some of the amazing stuff we have uh, within our collection. And you have, as you say, uh, embroidery and trench art. Can you tell me what we can learn from them? Trench arts um, are rather a broad church. You always think when you say trench arts that you imagine a shell from the First World War, and a lot of them are made from, from brass from the First World War. But, but all sorts of things are made, um, and in the Second World War, and more recently in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we've got, uh, bizarrely, an awful lot to do with smoking. So there's lots of ashtrays, lots of matchbox holders, and even a pipe, a pipe holder. But there's also cutlery, a nice clock, 
um, and ornaments. And, and so soldiers did these during warfare. There's uh, periods of intense activity, followed generally by long periods of not a lot happening. And it was during these periods that soldiers tend to turn their hand to fill their time by doing what they had to hand and, and, a, sh- and a sharp object and a brass shell, uh, uh, often in abundance during both the First and Second World War. And they're the, they're the objects and, and the materials to hand. And it was those that soldiers turned to decorate and to make into um, artistic objects. And you also have five Victoria Crosses from the forming of the Royal Logistic Corps. Yeah, that's within the medal collection. And we've got we've got some impressive medals in the museum. So we've got um, the RCT medal collection, a world-class medal collection. It's the Royal Corps of Transport. It's one that was just one of our forming corps um, when they joined the Royal, uh, the Royal Logistic Corps, bought with them this impressive medal collection that they'd collected over many years. And unlike a, a sort of an infantry regiment that might take part in, in this war or that war or this, this campaign or that campaign, um, the supporting arms, the transport and the suppliers, well, they're there in every conflict. So our medal collection's comprehensive. It'll cover every single operation the British Army have been involved with uh, going back to the Battle of Waterloo. So we've got an impressive medal collection here. And other exhibits include the Rolls-Royce vehicle. Field Marshal uh, Montgomery was driven in when he landed in France shortly after D-Day and Napoleon's field bakery captured at the Battle of Waterloo. Yes, um, they're both wonderful objects. The Rolls-Royce has just been away having its annual service, an MOT, uh, because we do keep that on the road and some of the other vehicles. Yes, the field bakery from the Battle of Waterloo captured by the gunners um, and they kindly uh, have let us have it because it's more in part of our story. Um, It's a wonderful piece to have. There aren't many um, sort of large objects um, that are 200 years old uh, within the collection. So it's because we do catering, because we tell the story of of, of feeding the army through various campaigns, it it fits neatly into into our story. It looks like a pizza oven on wheels, if truth be known. But it's it's a lovely thing to have. And um, yes, it's it's one of our earlier objects and we're very pleased to have it on display. And a large collection of horse-drawn and motorised military logistics vehicles, including a World War I horse ambulance and bomb disposal vehicles. Absolutely right. So our, our history is entwined with the history of the horse. So until the motor engine came along, um, your supplies were horse-drawn. And unlike the cavalry who might ride one horse, our soldiers had many horses to look after. Our wagons were pulled with at least two, sometimes four or six, depending on, on how muddy or rough the terrain was. And we're lucky enough to have some a, a number of First World War horse-drawn vehicles. And horses were extremely valuable. And if one was injured on the battlefield, uh, you try and pick it up and recover it. And what better way to recover an injured horse than with an ambulance pulled by another horse? So we have a horse-drawn horse ambulance. And we do have a, a, a bomb disposal vehicles, a, a Humber pig from Northern Ireland. And bomb disposal is, is part of our story. And so we have formerly um, Royal Army Ordnance Corps bomb disposal officers, now Royal Logistic Corps bomb disposal officers. And we, and we tell that story and we show how that's evolved over time. And the museum opens on May the 18th. And for now, at least due to COVID, you need to book in advance. The American Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has said the US will respond to reckless or aggressive acts by Russia. He was speaking to the BBC after the G7 meeting of foreign ministers in London before leaving for Ukraine. President Biden has said very clearly and repeatedly is, if Russia acts recklessly or aggressively, as it did with the solar winds, uh, cyber intrusion, as it did with interference in our elections, 
as it did with what it's done to Mr. Uh, Navalny, uh, then we will respond. But at the same time, we would prefer a more stable and predictable relationship. And if Russia chooses that path, there are areas where we can uh, cooperate in our, in our mutual interest. Well, we're joined again by Jonathan Marcus, former diplomatic and defence correspondent at the BBC, and Professor Michael Clark, former director of RUSI. Uh, Michael, Secretary Blinken is in Ukraine today. What message will he want to be heard in Moscow? Uh, I think two messages, really. One is that uh, the United States cares about Ukraine, what happens to it. Ukraine will not be joining NATO anytime soon, I, could, I can promise you that. But the United States will not turn a blind eye to anything that the uh, that the Russians tried to do in Ukraine. You know, following the um, the big manoeuvres they held a couple of weeks ago, that were obviously very intimidatory. And I think the other thing, the other thing, the way in which the Americans want to be heard is in the rest of the Western alliance. I think President Biden and Secretary Blinken are very clear that they want to establish Western leadership. They want they want the U.S. to be seen to lead the West in ways that the Trump administration was much more equivocal about. So I think there's two messages there, one to the Russians, one to the Western allies. And Jonathan, how different do you think US-Russia relations will be under the new administration? I think they'll be a lot tenser. I think though there is a problem for the Americans uh, and it rests with their allies, particularly in, uh, in Europe. Uh, uh, the Europeans, some of the Europeans certainly kind of want to have it both ways. On the one hand, yes, they're delighted that America is back. Uh, they want uh, American leadership. They're delighted that they now have uh, an administration in Washington that uh, doesn't appear on occasions to be uh, wondering about pulling out of NATO and uh, things like that. But on the other hand, uh, that means that they have responsibilities. Uh, and there are countries uh, in, uh, in the alliance, key countries, uh, who are to some extent a little ambivalent about what the Russians are doing. They don't like uh, what Russia does in Ukraine. They don't like what Russia does to domestic opposition. But they're not necessarily willing uh, to take uh, very significant, uh, particularly economic steps, to do much about it. Uh, I'm thinking particularly, for example, of Germany and its support for the Nord Stream gas pipeline, uh, a direct pipeline uh, running from Russia uh, to Germany, which is about 95% built now, which the Americans are very critical of. Some European countries uh, are very critical of as well. But the Germans, Angela Merkel certainly seems to want to press ahead with that. And it's a kind of touchstone for the uh, differences within the alliance. So American leadership, yes, is crucial. But the next step is to try and get the allies uh, speaking with one voice and being willing, when necessary, to take uh, tough measures uh, against Moscow. And you could probably say uh, against uh, Beijing as well uh, on occasion when that might be needed. And Jonathan, Anthony Blinken also said that Washington is still not sure if Iran is serious about returning to the deal that constrained its nuclear activities. Uh, talks to revive the Iran nuclear deal are due to start in Vienna soon. What are the challenges for those talks with the US under a new administration? Well, the challenges are practical and political. I mean, at the practical level, uh, there's a uh, look, the goal is clear. Uh, the aim is to get the Iranians back into accepting the constraints of the existing agreement and in return for that to have a whole range of economic sanctions and so on against them lifted. 
Now, there are a lot of practical disputes, clearly, about the sequencing uh, of these two steps, uh, what sanctions get lifted, who moves first, how many of the sanctions get lifted, what uh, verification measures will be put in and so on. So there's a huge bundle of practical issues that are very, very difficult indeed. Uh, but, but beyond that, I think there are huge political difficulties in Iran itself. Uh, we've seen over recent weeks the Revolutionary Guard, the military as well, uh, raising its voice inside Iran. There are questions by critics of the Biden administration as to whether really uh, the Americans are talking to the right Iranians. Are they talking mm. to the, the moderate sounding guys who, uh, moderate in inverted commas, who appear willing to return to the deal, but fundamentally the people who really call the shots in Tehran don't want to. And of course there are uh, elections looming uh, in Iran as well. So that that complicates the picture too. So there are a lot of difficulties, as I say, both practical and political, which perhaps suggests that, you know, some kind of settlement of this problem is not going to be found quickly uh, in a matter of weeks or so. And we'll have to watch it very, very carefully to see uh, what progress can actually be made. Uh, and Michael Clark, we've also heard this week that the defence partnership between the UK and India is being strengthened. What is the relative importance of India within the Indo-Pacific tilt for the UK? Oh, well, uh, potentially it's extremely important if the UK is going to have some sort of Indo-Pacific role greater than the one it had a few years ago. Uh, you know, successive British governments have always talked about having a special relationship with India and a strategic partnership, and it never really happens or hasn't. But things are different now because there's been some pushback against, real pushback against China over the last four or five years. And so the Indians are now prepared to look for other partners, but it's all small steps. It's, uh, you know, maritime information. It's, it's creating the best of our information systems because the the Indians are very good in Mumbai they've got world-class information handling we do world-class information handling so pretty small steps based on intelligence and information um, nothing dramatic yet but it's a start Michael Clark Jonathan Marcus good to speak to you today thank you very much for your time now, COVID travel restrictions mean veterans can't attend D-Day commemoration services in France this year again. The Royal British Legion has said it will be hosting an event at the National Memorial Arboretum and are urging veterans to attend, as Tim Cooper reports. A lone piper plays high on a wartime Mulberry Harbour in Aramange, Normandy. It's the 6th of June 2019, the 75th anniversary of Operation Overlord, the landings by the Allies on German-occupied France. A moving opportunity it was for veterans to visit and share their experiences from a lifetime ago. People like Charles Somerville, who I interviewed two years back. But it's just been such a wonderful sunny day and everybody's having a great time. And this is my sixth visit, once in 1944, and every five years going back. Also, Donald Hawkins. Every year they're here to, to welcome us for what we did, you know. And, um, it's very nice to see it. But this year the veterans won't be coming to Aramanche. Covid travel restrictions make it impossible. But there is an alternative. Bob Gamble is from the Royal British Legion. So the Royal British Legion and the Normandy Memorial Trust are uh, inviting veterans and relatives of the fallen to come to the National Memorial Arboretum uh, on the 6th of June uh, to commemorate both D-Day 77 and the opening of the British Normandy Memorial 
The services of commemoration in France will be live-streamed to the Arboretum, as will the opening of the British Normandy Memorial. I've been sent some footage of the site to have a look at, and I can tell you that it's high over Gold Beach, and that was one of the main landing points for the British on D-Day, and there are tall columns of stone forming a square, and each piece of stone is inscribed with names of more than 22,000 British men and women who fell on D-Day and then during the Battle of Normandy in the summer of 1944. D-Day veteran George Batts has been there and he's spoken to BritishNormandyMemorial.org about what he thinks of it. To see 22,500 names, it's shock and it brings it home. And I hope it works for people ensuring there is never ever another world war as much as honouring our comrades we left behind. Forming a focal point to the memorial is a large sculpture. It depicts three soldiers coming ashore. It's the work of renowned artist David Williams Ellis, who told me about how he designed it when I visited his studio in 2019. And it went from a drawing to a maquette modelled in clay, and then from that we decided what shapes we were going to make, what, what the composition was going to make and whether it was aggressive enough or whether it was you know, had the right expressions on its face and that sort of thing. In order to get the figure, to get the aggression, you have to, you know, I had, a, had to have a model who was really strong, so I had in fact an ex-dancer as one of them and a footballer as another one. Now in position, the work alongside the names will forever stand, overlooking the beaches where so much was sacrificed. This year, there won't be the crowds of well-wishers hoping to meet one of the dwindling numbers of veterans in France. But it's hoped that bringing the veterans together in Staffordshire will give them some comfort. When you see how palpably close they are to each other uh, on the 6th of June and in the days surrounding by it, you are not left in any doubt that this matters hugely to them. And for any veteran who can't attend the National Memorial Arboretum on the 6th of June, the commemorations there will also be live-streamed. Tim Cooper reporting there. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot, and all my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. (laughs) 